0: Well, good morning church. Good morning balcony and uh, good morning, Cold water. Good to have you with us and Coldwater. I'm to uh, make a special reminder to you uh, that we would sure love to have you with us at our um, informal members meeting tomorrow night at 7 p.m. So it'd be great to see you there. All right, well, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now uh, to John chapter 20 verses 19 to 23, John 19. Or John 20, sorry, 19 to 23, that's on page 906. I mentioned last week that just in the providence of God, we had two weeks uh, to kind of do this sort of vision-casting, forward-looking piece because uh, we had a a guest speaker who wasn't going to be with us. We had originally planned for one week of this, uh, but we had the two before we get into our Advent series. And then in January, uh, we're going to spend a big block of time uh, talking about biblical anthropology Uh, which is a boring title for a very important topic. Uh, Maybe we'll come up with something better. But uh, in January, we're going to start talking about what does it mean to be a human being? Uh, It was interesting. I stumbled, I've seen this quote before, but I stumbled across it just, uh, just yesterday doing some reading. John Calvin in the introduction to the Institute says that all our wisdom as Christians comes down to two things. Knowing who God is and knowing who we are. And sometimes I think we spend all of our time talking about the first and none of our time talking about the, the latter. And, and all of a sudden in our culture, it's, it's that, that that is under assault. What does it mean to be a human being? What does it mean to be an embodied creature? What does it mean to be male and female in the image and likeness of God? So we'll get into that in in January, and as I said, in in December, we'll have uh, our Advent and Christmas focus as we look at who Jesus is, the Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas, but we have this little gap after our Acts series, and before we get into all of that, and so I thought it would be very helpful uh, for us to look at uh, two of the Great Commission passages. I mentioned last week there are four, uh, actually, in, in the New Testament. And uh, we had already looked in the series at two of them, and so I thought, why not look at these other two? Last week, we looked at uh, Luke 24, 44 to 49. That's actually the third of the Fourth Grade Commission uh, passages, chronologically speaking. That one takes place just hours before the Ascension. And today, uh, I want to look at actually the first of those, chronologically speaking, in John 20. This one takes place on Easter Sunday night. So this is the night of the day on which Jesus rose from the dead. And the disciples are still trying to figure things out. Uh, In fact, as this story begins, they're hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. And they're just starting to connect the dots. They're just starting to remember. You know, Jesus said a lot of things about how he would suffer and be rejected and die and rise again. Maybe he wasn't speaking metaphorically. Maybe he was speaking literally. Maybe this was all part of the plan. And, and so they're, they're just connecting these dots when all of a sudden Jesus passes through the walls, appears in their midst, and begins to speak. So hear now the word of the Lord, John 20, 19 to 23. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, "'Peace be with you.' When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord." Jesus said to them again, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I mentioned last week that uh, the reason we're doing these out of order is because last week was our Anniversary Sunday, and I thought it would be rude to uh, confuse and offend you on Anniversary Sunday. But uh, there is the possibility of you being confused and offended today because of the four great commission passages, this is the one that is a little bit confusing and potentially controversial. And partly that's just because it's the first of the four. And so Jesus unpacked all of this over the subsequent 40 days that he was with the disciples. He would have elaborated. He would have repeated. He would have clarified like any good teacher will do. But here he is speaking in broad brush and vivid symbol. Remember, they're scared. They're hiding. They're trying to figure things out. And so Jesus is trying to help them understand and embrace this new reality. In this important transitional passage, he offers the disciples four things. Number one, a peace Grounded in forgiveness. Number two, a mission patterned on his own example. Number three, a power connected to the new creation. And number four, an authority rooted in the gospel. We'll start where Jesus starts with a peace grounded in forgiveness. Look again at verses 19 to 20. On the evening of that day, on that day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, the first day of the week, so this is Easter Sunday evening. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So there's a lot of change that happens in those couple of verses. At the start of verse 19, the disciples are scared. Uh, They're hiding behind locked doors for fear of the Jews. They're scared, and they're also feeling guilty because they realize that they've all let down the Lord. Can can you imagine uh, realizing in that moment, and, and particularly when you start hearing rumors, the ladies say that they've seen Jesus, he's risen from the dead, and all of a sudden you realize, I blew it. I, I, I abandoned Jesus, and not only does he know that in heaven, he knows that now on the earth because he's risen from the dead. And he's coming here, apparently. Uh, Jesus said to the women, tell the disciples, right? I'm going to appear to them too. They were supposed to hear that as an encouragement. I wonder if they did. It's like when you know you failed a test, and teacher says, well, I'd like to meet with you tomorrow. That's not super encouraging, uh, whether you meant it to be or not. And and so they're they're all feeling the weight of that. They all made these loud protestations Jesus, we're going to be with you. Jesus, even if everyone falls away, I will be there. And then, of course, when bad things happen, they all fell away and Jesus was left alone. And so they're feeling that. They're feeling their weakness and humanity, they're very aware of their sin and betrayal. And then at the end of verse 19, it says that the disciples were very glad. So, what happened? How did they go from guilty and scared to grateful and glad? And, of course, the answer is that they saw the wounds of Jesus and they heard from him words of peace. Colin Cruz is here. The disciples, and especially Peter, who had denied him three times, would have felt deeply ashamed that they had abandoned Jesus in his hour of need. When Jesus appeared to them behind locked doors, his greeting of peace be with you, showed he was not holding their failures against them. Rather, he was offering a restored relationship. All lasting peace begins right there. All lasting peace begins with understanding that God is not holding our sins and failures against us. That somehow they've been washed away. Somehow the slate has been wiped clean through the body and blood of Jesus. All lasting peace begins right there. Do you understand that? Do you understand who he was, what he did, and what he purchased? because the disciples are just starting to get that now, just like Jesus said they would. He prophesied this peace before he gave them this peace. In John 14, 27 to 29, he said, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. Jesus says, I I told you about this peace. I told you that I would go away and that I would come back. And, And I told you ahead of time so that when that happened, you would believe. And now the disciples do believe, and believing that they receive, and receiving that they are glad. They understood in that moment when they saw the wounds of Jesus, when they heard him speaking peace, they understood that they are forgiven, that they have been reconciled to God, that they are forever friends with Jesus, and there is peace and life beyond the grave. When you understand those four things, that that you're forgiven, that you could be reconciled to your creator, that you are forever friends with Jesus, and that there's peace and life beyond the grave. When you understand those things, it changes everything. When you believe those things in your heart, when you receive those things from his hand, then then you have a, a lasting peace in the here and now, a peace not as the world gives, a peace that passes understanding, a peace that only comes from Jesus. And when you have that peace, then you're ready to be sent out on mission. Can I just stop and ask you? Do you have that peace? We live in in what is undoubtedly the most anxious generation of all time. There's a book coming out by a fellow named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, Maybe you have read some stuff by Jonathan Haidt before. He wrote the book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, which uh, was a huge bestseller. Uh, he also wrote the book, The Righteous Mind. He's not a Christian. Uh, he's, he's, actually, I was listening to an interview with him with Russell Moore, who's a Christian, and who has a podcast where he interviews authors, and it was very, very interesting. Uh, because he speaks very highly of the benefit of faith communities uh, for human development and for child development. Uh, and he even went on to say, I, I belong to a synagogue. I'm an atheist, but I belong to a synagogue. I think it's important uh, for children to be connected to faith communities so that they can access communal wisdom, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which was just funny. He's basically saying, yeah, I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in God. Uh, you know, and, he, and he's ethnically Jewish, so he goes to synagogue. I, I, I thought that was interesting. He's, he's definitely not a believer is my point. But he has observed what I think probably all of us, most of us certainly have observed over the last 10 to 20 years, and that is that children today are more anxious, less stable, and secure than at any point in living memory. And he's writing about that. Why is that? Why is it that anxiety is off off the charts? There are a number of people in our community, there's at least one that I know of sitting in this room today, who... Literally, you could make a living now just talking to young people ab- about anxiety. It's, it's become a, a, a mental health crisis out there and anxiety is a huge part of that. The kids are not okay. They are worried that the, that the world is, is going to end because of some kind of climate disaster. They're worried that they're never going to be able to buy a house because of skyrocketing interest rates and property values. They're worried that they're never going to find a mate because of the collapse of traditional forms of social interaction and gender. And then most of all, they're worried about themselves, who they are, how they look, and whether they measure up. If ever there was a world that needed messengers of peace, it is this one. Our world needs people who are not afraid our world needs people who are standing on solid ground our world needs people who know what is true who know what really matters who know what doesn't matter and who know what is coming our world needs people who know jesus Because Jesus is the only one who can give us true and lasting peace. Not a peace like the world gives, that is temporary, that is fading, that is fake. But a peace that passes understanding. Real peace. Solid peace. A peace that literally comes from another world. If you have that peace, then you should be glad. And if you have that peace, then you should be willing to go and share that peace with other people. And that's the next thing we see in the story. Jesus gives them a peace grounded in forgiveness. And then he sends them out on a mission patterned on his own example. Look again at verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What does that mean exactly? Are we supposed to do everything that Jesus did? Are we supposed to, you know, feed thousands of people with a couple loaves of bread? Are we supposed to walk on water? Are we supposed to, you know, cast out demons, walk into a village and walk into a hospital and empty it of, of sick people? Are we supposed to die on the cross? Are we supposed to rise from the dead? What exactly does that mean? It? Now, I mean, some, some of that stuff we do in a, in a symbolic sense, some of that we do in a collective sense, But I mean, some of that stuff, clearly, we are not supposed to be doing or trying to do. You know, I think we would all agree, you don't have to die on the cross because Jesus did that. And when he did that, he said, it is finished. So a lot of this stuff has been done for you. That's the gospel. The gospel is not, look at Jesus doing stuff, now you go and do stuff. The gospel is, look at what Jesus did, receive that, because it's finished. And and yet, there's a sense in in which Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So, So what does that mean? Andreas Kostenberger says helpfully here, just as the Son represented the Father, so Jesus' followers are to represent the Son as they are indwelt and enabled by the Spirit. Okay, so that's the comparison. Just as Jesus was sent into the world as the representative of the Father, so now we are being sent into the world as representatives of him. That's the point. We are ambassadors. Now, remember, this is the first of the four Great Commission passages, chronologically speaking. So Jesus is going to flesh this out. Several days after this, when the disciples are up in Galilee, Jesus is going to speak to them in very practical terms, in terms of the nuts and bolts of this commission. He'll say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So like I said, that's the the nuts and bolts of the Great Commission. We make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. But here, before we get into any of that, Jesus is reminding the disciples that wherever they go and whatever they do, they're representing Jesus. Did your mom and dad ever remind you of that when you went out the house with your friends on a Saturday night? I remember that. My mom would say, you know, make sure you're wearing clean underwear, right? Because if you get in a horrific car accident and die, I'd hate for the coroner to think that Betty Carter doesn't, isn't up on her laundry, right? No, no, I'm sure that's not what she meant. Mom here. But we, we, are, <laughs> we are conscious of the fact that our kids represent us. And by the way, I say all the same things that my mom says to me. I say them to my kids. Many times I have hugged my kids before they went out on the town and said, now just remember, remember who you are, remember where you come from, and then sometimes I'll laugh and say, and remember everyone in this town knows who your parents are. (laughs) And I'm I'm not just saying that because I'm a pastor, right? I hope that if I was a butcher or a baker or a candlestick maker, that everyone in town would know that I follow Jesus, And and so I want my kids to understand. You you understand whether you like it or not, that when you go out in this in this town, you represent your family and you represent the Lord. And you say, Well, that's a terrible burden to put on kids. Listen, I I got news for you. That's reality. That's reality. And and wisdom is living in line with reality. And so we need to know that. We need need to understand that for many people, for many young people, we are the only Bible they will ever read. And so they will make decisions about whether or not they're going to follow Jesus based on what they see of Jesus in us. Is that a huge responsibility? Yes, it is. It's part of what it means to be a Christian. The Apostle Paul says that this is actually one of the main reasons why God rejected the Old Covenant community. He said, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is one of the major reasons why the Old Covenant house had to be ground down to one pure and perfect stone because they were not representing God effectively or appropriately among the nations. And so a new representative was chosen, Jesus. He is the image of, of the invisible God. As Jesus himself said, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. So Jesus represented God perfectly. He said what he was told to say. He did what he was told to do. That was the claim that he made again and again and again in John's Gospel. He said to the disciples in places like John 5, 19, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does That the son does likewise. In John 12, 49, he said, I've not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. So when Jesus was sent out, he did what he was told to do and he said what he was told to say. He was constrained in his speech and conscious of his demeanor at all times. That's what it means to be an ambassador. It is a tremendous responsibility to bear the name of Christ among the nations. It is a terrific and terrible honor to be known as a Christian in this community, to to literally be a little Christ. Did you know that that's what the word Christian means? The etymology of the word Christian literally means little Christ's. It's a tremendous honor. It's a tremendous responsibility to bear that name in this community. Are you aware of that? Do you understand today that when you pass through those outside doors, you will go out as living representatives of Jesus Christ. You'll go out as an ambassador. You're supposed to talk the Jesus talk and walk the Jesus walk. Speak and shine. That's the mission. Now, how in the world are we going to do that? Well, thankfully, there's a third component to the story. Jesus gives the disciples a peace grounded in forgiveness, a mission patterned after his own example, and then a power connected to the new creation. So, look again at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, here's where we start to get into the confusing and controversial bits. Uh, This is the bit that can be confusing. Because I thought the disciples didn't receive the Holy Spirit until Pentecost. And I just mentioned, this is the first of the four Great Commission passages. This one happens on Easter Sunday night. So the disciples aren't going to receive the Holy Spirit for almost 50 days. Right? Because Jesus, there's 40 days between the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus. Right? And then there's 10 days after the ascension before the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and so we wonder, what in the world is, is being talked about here? Are, are, we to, are we to understand that there were sort of a pri- there was a private Pentecost before the public Pentecost? Uh, did, the, did the Spirit fall on the disciples twice? What in the world is happening here? D.A. Carson is helpful. He says, the episode in chapter 20, verse 22, which most will agree is in some sense symbolic, is best understood as symbolic of the endowment that is still to come. All right? So look at what actually is said in this passage and notice what isn't said. It doesn't say in this passage that they received the Holy Spirit. All you have is Jesus coming into a room, taking a deep breath and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. Meaning you have Jesus inviting the disciples to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say that they yet were. And in fact, more than a month later, chronologically speaking, in this storyline, Jesus will say to the disciples, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So a month later, the coming of the Holy Spirit is still being spoken of as a future event. So clearly here, this is symbolic. He breathes on them and invites them to receive the Holy Spirit. So this is a prophetic action. This is a symbolic action but now, as readers, we want to know, symbolic of what? And the first text that comes to mind, of course, is Genesis 2-7, which says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Isn't that interesting? You've heard me say this before, I'm Sure. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are telling the same story. It's it's a Hebrew storytelling device called recapitulation. So they tell the story twice from different magnifications. So in the first chapter of Genesis, you get the story of the creation of the entire cosmos. You get light and stars and everything. It's very wonderful. And then in Genesis 2, you you zoom in and you get a drawn-out, extended director's cut version of the story of the creation of human beings. And here you you discover all of a sudden that it wasn't that Jesus just spoke into the air, yeah, let's have a man and a woman. No, you find out actually it was a very tactile process that that he stirred from the dirt, as it were, that he, he made from the earth a vessel. And then the critical point in the story is when he breathed into that vessel the breath of God. And it's the breath of God that raised the man and the woman above the level of the animals and made them image and likeness. So the breath of God is a game changer. It moves us from being animals to being human beings. You ever wonder why, like, why there aren't a lot of s- symphonies written by chimpanzees? I do. Uh, because in my biology class in in high school, they told me that a chimpanzee and a human being share, I think it's 96% the same DNA. So we're very similar. And yet, like I said, not a lot of good symphonies written by chimpanzees. Now, I don't know how impactful that is, because actually it turns out we share 87% of our DNA with a pineapple, so I don't even know why they tell you that in... High school, or where I share it with you. The point is, the breath of God is a game changer. Now, there are a couple of other passages that I, I think would surely lie in the minds of these disciples when they are observing Jesus making this prophetic show, this symbolic demonstration. But one of those, surely, top of mind, would have been Ezekiel 37. Pastor Rob actually referenced it this morning, whether under the guidance of the Holy Spirit or whether having read uh, this morning's message, I'm not sure. We talked about Ezekiel 37 a couple of weeks ago because Paul, the Apostle Paul, refers to it in his speech before King Agrippa in Acts 26. He says that he's on trial because he believes in the hope of the Jews, and then he defines the hope of the Jews fundamentally in terms of resurrection, referring to Ezekiel 37. In Ezekiel 37, the prophet is taken out and he's shown a valley filled with dry bones. The dry bones represent the nation of Israel. They are dead, right? Keep in mind, Ezekiel was a prophet in exile. Ezekiel had this vision in Babylon, meaning it's like having a vision while you've been buried alive, which is one of the images used for the Babylonian exile, that in essence, God is going to bury his people alive, bury them in Babylon. But in the grave, right, with the door closed and dirt on top, there's this vision, vision about dry bones. And again, the dry bones represent the dead nation of Israel. God asks the prophet if dry bones can be brought back to life. The prophet says, O Lord God, you know. Then the Lord speaks to the bones and says, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. He tells the prophet Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones, saying, Come from the four winds, O breath. Breathe on these slain that they may live. And so he does. The prophet speaks to the breath. The breath falls on the bones, and the bones come back to life. So what do you think it meant to these Bible-reading Jewish boys when Jesus steps into the room and goes, (sighs) receive the Holy Spirit? I'm pretty sure they heard that as a promise of resurrection and new creation life. I don't think there's any other way they could have heard that. In fact, this seems to be the entire point of John's gospel. John's gospel takes us on a journey from creation to new creation. How does John's gospel begin? In the beginning, there's your creation, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So, John, he's like the, you know, sometimes the preacher gives you the outline of the sermon before he preaches the sermon. Right? It's because we know some of you need like little posts to pass through and little boxes to tick in order to put track. And so John is the same way. John just gives you the punchline at the start of the story Jesus is God. So who breathes on the disciples in John 20? God. John tells you that in the first verse of his gospel In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he'll tell us later, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. Okay, so Jesus, God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. So that's where John begins. And that's why Jesus came. He came to give us life. He came to bring us back to life. He came to work new creation. He came to make animals, people who had fallen down, 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 down into an almost unrecognizable state. He came to give them resurrection and new creation life. To do that, he had to live a perfect life. He had to die a sacrificial death. He had to descend to the dead. He had to defeat death and hell. On the third day, he had to rise again He had to ascend to the Father's right hand and he had to pour out the breath of his Spirit on all believing flesh. When Jesus invites the disciples to receive the Holy Spirit, he is inviting them to receive the power of new creation life. He is inviting them to be raised from the dead, as it were. He is inviting them to be restored by one degree of glory to the next into the very image and likeness of God Which has been tarnished and obscured in them. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. That's what the Spirit is for. That's why the Spirit was promised. And in the life of every truly born again believer, that is what the Spirit does. Praise the Lord. So Jesus gives to the disciples a peace grounded in forgiveness, a mission patterned on his own example a power connected to the new creation, and then finally, an authority rooted in the gospel. So the last part was the part that's a little bit confusing because it almost suggests that there were two Pentecosts. You have to understand symbolic action and then, you know, more than a month later, fulfillment. Okay. All right, but here is the part that's potentially controversial. Look again at verse 23. Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Okay, that's in the Bible. We can pause, so you can read it again if you like. There it is. What exactly does that mean? Last week, Jesus said very clearly, you are witnesses. So like we said, we're, we're not the accused, we're not the accuser, we're not the judge, we're not the jury, we're the witnesses, right? We, we've got the easiest job in the entire process. We, we just speak about what we know and tell people what we've seen. Fantastic, right? We rested in that truth. We rejoiced in that truth. But, but here in this passage, it kind of sounds like Jesus is saying, we are the judge. It sounds like we are granting or withholding forgiveness, Is that what Jesus is saying here? And the answer, thankfully, is no. John Marsh, in his commentary, puts it very simply. He says, there is no doubt from the context that the reference is to forgiving sins or withholding forgiveness. But, though this sounds stern and harsh, it is simply the result of the preaching of the gospel, which either brings men to repent as they hear of the ready and costly forgiveness of God, or leaves them unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness, which is the gospel, and so they are left in their sins. What Jesus is saying here is actually no different than what Jesus said in Matthew 18 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. As preachers of the gospel, as stewards, of the gospel, because that's what the church is. We steward the gospel. It's our job to protect it, to put walls around it, make sure it doesn't change under pressure from the culture. We're stewards of the gospel, and we're proclaimers of the gospel. And in that role, in that function, we are in the binding and loosing business, not because of our own authority, but because of the authority of the message we preach. When we preach the gospel to people, we are handing them a key with which they can open the gate and pass through to the other side. We are presenting them with a binary option. They can embrace the Jesus that we preach and pass through into everlasting life, or they can reject the Jesus we preach and pass through into everlasting death. That is the power of the gospel. So what Jesus says here in John 20 is no different than what he says 40 days later in Luke 24. We are witnesses. We open our mouth and speak. And as the word goes forth from our mouth, it divides all people into two camps. In, in John's or in, in the Apocalypse of John, Revelation, John describes the story of all of history between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ as one in which the word goes forth and every human being is separated into two camps, the camp of the lamb and the camp of the beast. And, and that's exactly what John is, is saying here. Our word goes out. And, and as that, the sword of the word comes towards them, people are going to lean one way or the other They're going to lean towards us and the Christ we preach. They're going to find Jesus and they're going to be saved. Or they're going to lean away from us and from Jesus into darkness, death, and damnation. Again, not because we say it so, but because the gospel makes it so. It's an absolutely terrifying responsibility. The Apostle Paul was well aware of it. He said, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. So using very similar imagery, the Apostle Paul says that we, we walk through the world giving off a certain smell, metaphorically speaking, hopefully. To some, it smells like life. And they draw near. They are attracted. They draw near to us and they find Jesus. And they enter into eternal life. But to others, the exact same life, the exact same message, the exact same witness smells like death. They are repulsed. They are offended. They draw away. They miss Christ. They reject Christ. And in doing so, they enter into eternal death. So that's your job wander throughout the whole world speaking and smelling like Jesus and affecting eternal destinies. Who is sufficient for these things? And the answer is saved by the body and blood of Christ filled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus you are That's the answer that that is expected by that question. It's not like Paul is saying, wow, who's sufficient for these things? As if like, go home, put that down as aspirational, but nobody's going to actually do it. He doesn't say that to give us all an out clause. See, that's the thing. The apostles believed that if we are saved by Christ and if we are filled by the Holy Spirit, then we can do this maybe not perfectly at first, probably not perfectly ever until Jesus returns, but we can do this. God equips those he calls. God gives you commands that are impossible so that you'll pray to receive grace to fulfill them. All the commands of God are impossible. And yet his grace is sufficient even for our weaknesses. So again, the job It's to smell like Jesus, which means from time to time it's our responsibility as believers to give ourselves the smell test, right? My wife laughs at me because I am fundamentally committed to the notion that you can wear socks more than once before you wash them. Uh, not, not. All, I want to be clear, not all socks and not every day. I understand that. Like if you, if you are busy and you're walking hard and you're working hard, then yeah, do us all a favor and throw those socks in the laundry afterwards. But I have lots of days where I'm sitting at my desk writing a sermon and then maybe I walk over to Tim Hortons and talk to somebody. Maybe I walk back. But I figure those socks maybe can get you another day. And so on many occasions, my wife has woken up from bed to find me. I'm getting out of the shower, and I've got a pair of socks, and I'm <sharp inhale> Looks like I'm praying over it, but I'm not. I'm not trying to raise the sock from the dead. I'm just trying to assess whether it can it's appropriate for me as a, as a man and, and as a pastor. Just this morning, actually, I do this a lot, and it, it doesn't annoy her. Um, just this morning, I pulled out a shirt, and, uh, and I put it on, and it had been in the closet because it got washed, and then it was in the closet for a couple weeks, and I put it on, and I, I gave it the full, and I said, well, honey, would you come over here? And she came, and I gave her a big hug, and I kind of brought the armpits up just so high, I said, does this smell good to you? And she says, yes, it smells good, but you know, she probably didn't appreciate that kind of a hug, but... I'm going to be shaking hands, and there's going to be at least one side hug today, so I want to make sure that the shirt passes the smell test. And th- there, there is a sense in, in... Are you distracted by that? <laughs> Those of you who aren't married, this is what you sign up for, kids. It's great. <laughs> Marriage rates are plummeting all across Aurelia. <laughs> it's a team sport, the smell test, Right? And that's part of marriage too, right? Because you can help each other figure out whether or not you're looking and smelling like Jesus in all the ways you should. Maybe that's something you could do this afternoon. Seriously now, ask each other, honey, over the last week, I'd love for you to take a look at all my posts on social media, the last 30 posts, and just tell me, do I look and smell like Jesus? That's a scary one, isn't it? Or, honey, would you just sort of think back over the last ten conversations we've had as a couple, and would you just tell me, did you catch a whiff of Jesus in there? That's what we're supposed to do. Our job is to look and smell and speak like Jesus. Who is sufficient for these things? You say, that's an impossible task. Well, it is. It is. Of course the mission is impossible. Of course we can't do it in our strength. But but here's the good news. No one is asking you to do it in your own strength. In fact, in the passage we looked at last week, Jesus was very clear. He told the disciples not to try this in their own strength. He he told the disciples not to go out and, and start doing this until they are filled with power from on high. So you can't do this in your own strength. But you can do this when you are clothed with power from on high. So, receive the Holy Spirit. Drink deeply from wells of living water and go. As the Father has sent him, so now he is sending us oh god help let's pray together our heavenly father we need help to do what you have commanded us to do but we believe that you have given us grace and we believe that if we open our mouths and ask you will again fill us with grace lord we're reminded that the scriptures tell us to be ever being filled with the holy spirit and so, Lord, receiving the Holy Spirit is a one-time thing when we are saved, but it is also a daily thing. Lord, we cannot live the way you want us to live. We cannot look like Jesus. We cannot change by one degree of glory to the next into the same image as Jesus. We cannot do that without the Spirit. So, Lord, even in this place, even as hearts are humbled, even as quiet prayers are offered right now, even, even as, as husbands say, Lord, give me spirit to speak to my wife, in a way that sounds and smells like Jesus. Even as wives pray, Lord, give me grace right now to speak to my husband in a way that sounds and smells like Jesus. Even as parents say, Lord, help us right now to speak to our kids in a way that sounds and smells like Jesus. Even as all of us think about neighbors, think about waitresses, think about uh, coworkers that we're gonna interact with in the next 48 hours. Lord, we would pray right now. Give us grace fill us with the spirit that we could speak and smell like Jesus, be the fragrance of life among those who are perishing, summoning many out of darkness into your marvelous light. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.